Welcome back to the Present History Podcast. We have a really special episode today as I had the opportunity to sit down with Stephen Bourne, a critically acclaimed, award-winning social historian and author. Uh, It was a great interview and I had great fun um, sitting down with Stephen to talk about his book, Black Poppies. So get comfortable and I hope you enjoy my interview with Stephen Bourne. Well, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a real pleasure and an honour to to have you here. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, what made you get into history and this topic area in particular? I come from like a close-knit working class background from South London. Uh, when I was at school, I didn't learn anything. Um, secondary modern early 1970s wasn't much in the way of education certainly didn't do history we didn't study history at school Uh, not beyond the sort of first or second year anyway and what we did learn wasn't sort of worth much so it's kind of interesting because because I I hated secondary school I used to um, abscond a lot of the time and and what I would do is go and visit older relatives Mm particularly older women in my family, and, and talk to them about their lives. And so I learned very early on as a very impressionable teenager that first-hand testimony is key to how I later approached history in a more serious way. But one of my aunts was, was a black woman born in London in 1912, before the First World War. And really, I picked up on that, again, a, a, a early impressionable age that her story was interesting from the point of view of a a black working class woman who was born in 1912 and lived to the age of 81 and I mean so she had a long life and a very interesting life so that really sowed the seeds but I realized um that in, in terms of the second world war for instance and the stories she told me about the London Blitz and going to the air raid shelter and being adopted into my family um that the, there would have been other black people in Britain, in London, in the Second World War. And then I discovered the existence of a African air raid warden, a Nigerian air raid warden in, in another part of London. Wow. And that kind of was what led me later on to to, to look at black, his, black British history in a more systematic way. But not from an academic background at all. Never went to university when I was younger. Um, never studied history or anything like that. It was purely self-educated and, and just having an inquisitive mind. Wow. Wow, that's fantastic. And your book, uh, Black Poppies, um, kind of follows this on and looks at the, the role um, of black people uh, during the First World War um, and the fact that they were a large part of the, the British Army. They did play a, a rather large role during the First World War that oftentimes gets overlooked or uh, doesn't get spoken about maybe as much as it should. Why, why do you think that is, that it's, it's oftentimes overlooked? When I was younger and started doing this, this work, I learned from historian friends uh, that traditionally the history books, particularly the two world wars, and the British involvement in the two world wars, the history is was predominantly written by white middle class or upper class men who'd been to Oxford and Cambridge. Right. So they had a particular view of history, um, a, a somewhat narrow one. So every time I went to, to books to try and find World War One and World War Two books to try and find black people, you wouldn't find them. They were mm. barely, they were not even mentioned actually. I mean, I'm talking about the 1980s when I started looking for... And so one had to use one's imagination and and really sort of dig deep. And and so with the first... I mean, I've been writing Black British history books for over 30 years now. The Mm -hmm. first was 
my aunt Esther's story in 1991 and I've not looked back but it 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 very much was on my mind that the two world wars this the black participation both on the home front and in the armed services was missing and that it needed so as I grew older I would collect I'm like a magpie I collect any scrap of information I could find and talk to people about their experiences it's been very interesting in getting involved in projects and it wasn't until 2010 that I finally got the mother country book published which was a book about the black um, experience on the home front in Britain during the second world war but that was a book that took eight years to find a publisher every publisher wow. I went to knocked me back with wow. the mother country book but once the history press commissioned it in 2010 that was the turning point for me and it was awful really because publishers would say um what what i would what i was always told was from publishers from traditional historians is that the 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 numbers of black people in britain were so tiny they were insignificant they were insignificant uh in their contribution to the two world wars and i i just didn't accept that so i learned early on not to accept what people said just to go out and find the truth for myself and that's very important if you're going to be a historian yeah absolutely absolutely you've got to follow your own path follow the evidence and and what it actually suggests not what the the kind of common narrative what 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 the publishers that knock me back would say and they will still say it now and i'm talking about the big guns the big publishers i've Mm. never i've never worked for any of them i've always worked for independent publishers and they would say things to me like um there's no market for your books wow black people don't buy books black people don't read books i mean wow. this was 20 only 20 years ago and it was and i never accepted that because i knew it wasn't the truth but it yeah. was tough to go through those repeated rejections for the mother country book but once i got it published the world opened up to me mm. absolutely. And, absolutely sorry to answer your question black poppies followed on from from the mother country book history the history press agreed for me to do it oh fantastic fantastic so let's let's dig into uh, black poppies a little bit um so can we can we kind of set the context what was british society british culture like for black people before the first world war broke out very interesting because there were black people in britain in the edwardian period Mm. uh, prior to the first world war in all walks of life working class middle class students doctors teachers albeit a small number Mm. um road sweepers seamstresses I mean, in all walks of life, and I didn't do that research. There was a wonderful book, very influential book, written by a friend of mine called Jeffrey Green, called mm-hmm. Black Edwardians. And that was published back in 1998. Um, and that really opened up the subject. There's been a black presence in Britain since as far back as you can go. Yeah. And even before the Tudor period, but certainly in the Tudor period, there were, there were black people in Britain. Um, but Jeff's book, Black Edwardians, really highlights how diverse and interesting black people's lives were in Britain mm-hmm. in that period. Edwardian, 1901 to 1914. That's the period he covers. So that's just preceding the First World War. But no one had ever attempted a book on the black community in Britain in the First World War. So that was what the target I set myself, knowing that there was this huge community. Um, Well, let's say huge community in numbers, tiny. But when you read its book, you realise spread out all over Britain, not just in the seaports of the East End, Cardiff and Liverpool, but all over the country. Mm. So as the First World War broke out and recruitment drives started and they were really trying to pull people into the army, what did that look like for black people? Was it was it especially difficult for them to get recruited or, or what did that look like? There was a, 
from what I gather, in 1914, when the First World War broke out, there was a massive recruitment drive. And I think some people in the military tried to influence recruitment offices. And there were right. must have been thousands and thousands of recruitment offices all over the country to discourage black men from joining. I mean, I'm talking about Britain, yeah. not the Caribbean or African colonies. But many were let in because recruitment officers either weren't aware of this. It wasn't written down in law. It wasn't written as a rule. You have to discourage it. They were just discouraged, <clears throat> asked to discourage, but it didn't happen. Might have happened in some recruitment offices. It didn't happen in others. That's how people like Walter Tull got in. But many other black soldiers that I've written about got in as well. Now, going back to Jeff Green again, he was the one that told me that if you had three mates, three friends, two white, one black, and they all work together, socialise together, go to the pub together, whatever part of Britain they may be from, Yorkshire, Leeds, Hull, whatever, Liverpool maybe, Cardiff maybe, they would go to the recruitment office to join up. They're all British born. The recruitment officer is not going to turn away the black man or the mixed right. race man because it's going to lower the morale of the white his white friends. Right. So that's how it happened. And that's why with diligent research, not just by me, but others interested in the subject, and there's a lot of people interested in the First World War, but, but since the publication of Black Poppies in 2014, the first edition, many World War One enthusiasts have sent me pictures of black soldiers in British regiments. Wow. Exactly. We, sometimes we don't know who they are. Wow. Um, there's no identity. And some of those pictures have gone into my books, uh, certainly the second and third editions of Black Poppies. So it shows a different kind of aspect of world war one racism existed but not all white people were racist and not all black people felt that they were victims yeah yeah wow and so so kind of following on from that once they were recruited into the battalions and they were into the platoons what was life like for them on the front uh, as part of the army it, it would have been horrific uh, as mm. it was for any soldier on the front line yeah um there's, there's a marvellous story in, in the children's version of Black Poppies that was published last year um, that somebody sent me that wasn't in the original Black Poppies because I didn't have the story of a, a, a black soldier who happened to be African-American. He was an African-American who came to this country way back and was a coal miner, wow. joined the army, served in the British Army from 1915 and found the remains of a soldier in a trench and nobody wow. had given him a burial so he identified the soldier with his tag and, and bits and pieces that he found in his uh, decaying uniform and he buried him gave him a burial wow. and found an address for him and wrote to his family and, and told them i found the body of your son he wrote to his parents and I've given him a burial. So there would have been these these horrific experiences um, and, and human experiences that black men shared as well. And those stories are the stories that when I did the first edition of, of Black Poppies in 2014 for the centenary of World War War, really opened my mind up to the fact that the racism narrative is integral to this story. Yeah. It's important. We were an empire. We did colonize. There were racist attitudes. But boy, when you find stories of black and white comradeship wow, and friendship, yeah. Norman Manley, for example, who later became the first prime minister of independent Jamaica, um, extraordinary because he left a legacy. He left that story behind when he, before he died. The comradeship that he had as a foot soldier um, of Jamaican origin, but came to Britain and went to university, but joined up in 1914. 
the comradeship from the Tommies, as he called them, the white working classes, was phenomenal. They took care of him when he was sick. Um, they wouldn't allow anyone to come into their regiment or battalion and call him darky. He doesn't like it. We don't call wow. him that. Wow. Because that was the common name. And so, but when he was, when Norman was promoted, the officer class, white officer class from the, from the middle classes and the upper classes didn't like him because of mm. his colour. That's where he found the racist attitudes, not yeah. amongst the working class Tommies, amongst the middle class and upper class officer class. But that's not always the case. So again, it's not a clear-cut story. Everyone's experiences are different and relevant yeah. to their life experience. Absolutely. And they're all relevant to the, the history of the First World War as a whole as well. And we need to it be makes it much more stories. Well, when I wrote the book and found these stories, it, it made it much more multi-layered to me. Yeah. And, and, and in a way, I was relieved to find positive stories of comradeship and friendship. Mm. And when I give, when I've given hundreds of Black Poppies talks, all kinds of venues, um, people, black and white, have been almost like relieved to know that not all black soldiers in the First World War were treated badly. Yeah. A lot were, but a lot weren't. You have to give a balance. Well, I Absolutely. feel I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and this promotion, you mentioned Norman Manley getting promoted to, to the officer class. This is an interesting one um, because in 1914, uh, the Manual of Military Law prohibited black soldiers from becoming officers. Um, but one of the first to actually break through was Walter Tull, someone that you've written about uh, in the book. Um, can you tell us a little bit about his, his story? He's, he's a prime example of of a, of a, a British-born mixed-race um, football hero in the Edwardian period, um, played for Tottenham Hotspurs and and joined the football battalion. He was part of that recruitment drive in 1914, joined up and joined the, the football battalion, which was made up of well-known footballers. Because wow. again, it's inspiring and encouraging to other mm. men, to young men particularly, to join up. But he he's a very able and professional soldier, very brave on the front line, and rises through the ranks. Um, it's an extraordinary story, but sadly he doesn't survive the First World War. He's killed in action in 1918. But again, going back to the positive stories, the positive story that I relate about Walter is that when he was shot on the battlefront uh, by the enemy and fell, two or three of his battalion, white soldiers, tried to retrieve his body under fire. So there's wow. guns booming, there's shells dropping all around them there's bullets flying they were desperate to get to his body and retrieve it and they couldn't get to it so norman sorry walter tull died was killed in action but his body was never recovered but these soldiers from his battalion who loved and respected him that much um tried to try to retrieve his body but they couldn't wow it's just, it's tragic. Every, every story of a, of oh, a soldier yeah. dies. It's, it's oh, there's lots of stories like that in the book. It, it It's, I've kind of cherry-picked some of them for you, but it just opens the subject up in a mm. way that people weren't expecting. Because I think a lot of people's expectations were all black people in Britain must be all about racism. Sure. And part of the story is, but it's not the whole story. And that's what, what I love about doing what I do because I have that openness and that receptiveness to other narratives, not just one single narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And that's important for for the cultural relevancy of this issue as well, is that it's important absolutely. to acknowledge and to investigate and research the yeah. stories of racism and oppression. Yes, absolutely. But bringing that balance, like you say, 
of stories where there was comradeship or them working together or these more positive stories makes a more complete picture for those who are it shows that people were in the first world war were human yeah with all the complexities that that brings nothing that nothing is clear-cut absolutely Absolutely. And one of the other things you do in this book, which I found interesting, is you bring to light these stories of black and mixed race women, uh, women during the war yeah. as well. Um, <laughs> these these stories are incredible. What did the war look like for, for them, um, primarily on the home front, but those who, who might have served in the Well, nurses again, or... some in the working classes would have worked in munitions factories. Mm. Uh, there's evidence of mixed race women in Liverpool in the Liverpool uh, black community working in a factory making caps. See, there were very limited opportunities for black British and mixed race women at at that time. I mean, job opportunities were very few. You either went on the stage or you became a seamstress. My aunt Esther became a seamstress when she left school at 14. That was in 1926. But it was pretty much the same for any black or mixed race working class woman, unless you came from the middle classes. And then as there are stories in the book about Avril Coleridge Taylor and and, and women like that from the more affluent backgrounds or educated backgrounds, but they were very few. Um, So really the stories are very similar to what white women would have been doing at the time, supporting the war effort. But I don't think enough research has been done about um, black and mixed race women in Britain in the First World War. I did for my sins apply to do a PhD on this very subject. Wow. And got got turned down. Oh. <laughs> I won't mention the university. Not that I'm an academic, but I thought, well, they were offering a three-year bursary, and I tried actually about three different universities. They all turned me down. Um oh. So I never did pursue that any further, but it but, but certainly kept my mind open. And when Black Poppies was commissioned in 2014 by the History Press, they thought I was just going to write a book about Black servicemen. And I right. said, no, I want to include the wider community because women and children never get a look in. Mm. And so when you come to the, the children's version, you do have a chapter at the very beginning of the book about my aunt Esther's childhood, because I was careful to ask her what she could remember of her childhood in the First World War. Yes, I didn't make it up. She did see a Zeppelin go over her street with her dad. Her dad took her out into the street to see the Zeppelin. All the neighbours came out to watch this Zeppelin. They didn't realise it could have dropped bombs on them. Wow. It's like, and she saw, waved the Union Jack as as a little girl, um, to the soldiers marching off down North End Road, Fulham, which is where where they lived. And so women and children's stories figure in the adult version of the book and, and the children's version of the book. That was very important to me, to dig out those stories. We're taking a quick break from this episode to talk to you about BCAD clothing. Most of the time, history-themed hoodies and T-shirts are garish, childish, cheesy, in your face, and most of the time, frankly, unwearable. But BCAD clothing creates subversive, subtle, and stylish history-themed clothing that you can wear and not feel embarrassed about. They also use 100% organic, sustainable, and environmentally friendly cotton in all their items so that it's good for the planet as well. If you want to check out the full range, you can head to presenthistory.co.uk, press shop in the menu and explore. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's another one of the things that's kind of been overlooked in the the scholarship and especially in public history of the wars is the role of the home fronts, the crucial role that they played and the women and the children who were involved in the home front effort um, while the the men and and women were on the front lines as well, they actually it was a crucial role on the front lines, and the, the country would have collapsed. <laughs> a- absolutely, you see, with the Second World War, it's different because although there was a what they called a color bar against mm. black women joining 
the armed services, the ATS, the WAFs, some did get in, but it was, wasn't until that that discrimination was lifted in 1943. But in the First World War, I haven't yet been able to find evidence of a black British or mixed race woman in the armed services. Right. What I did find, um, well, I didn't find it, but this, this postcard collector contacted me because he'd read the Black Poppy's book, the first edition, mm. the adult version, and then sent me a photograph or postcard of a black nurse. And it was the first wow. black nurse, I'd, evidence of a black nurse I'd found in a, in a soldier's convalescent home. Mm. somewhere in the countryside of England. And I was able to get it into the, the second edition of Black yeah. Poppies, the second adult edition, mm. which came out. I'm very good at plugging my books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> got to have a sense of humour with it. 2019 that come out, mm. and that has got... I won't show it to you, you'll have to buy the book. But it, it but that's got the picture. That, but we don't know who she is. We haven't been able to identify wow. her. And this is the sort of work that I love doing. Or love receiving because people have been very very generous in the children's version another story that's been added to the black poppy story is that of tom rowett who was a police constable a british-born black police constable in south wales in 1914 and joins up joins the british army with his mates other police office officer wow. mates a lot of police officers left the police and joined the army during that big recruitment drive. So, you know, people send me stories all the time. Even now, they're still sending me pictures. Um, and and it, it's just, it, it just keeps growing and growing. <laughs> mm. That That's awesome. And and that kind of collaborative aspect with the public mm. is, is part of what makes public history and mm. um, kind of public facing history so exciting is that you can bring the I, public I, in. You're absolutely right. And I'm sure... I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are not generous, who yeah. keep things close to themselves for whatever reason, maybe good reasons or maybe bad reasons. But some people trust me with stories mm. um, and it, it, it or photographs that they found. And, and I always, with this, with the children's version, those, there were a handful of people, as I say, World War One enthusiasts, others that know about my work that i i just sent them complimentary copies of the book oh, i thought it's the least i could do yeah because they don't ask for money i'll just use the, use it use it use the photograph wow. I, you know i'm I, it's it's and i send them a complimentary copy of the book and it's the least i can do mm. it's not much but it but at least they have a copy of the book and their name in the acknowledgements but that's how it works it's about people being generous mm. and big hearted and 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 I try to be like that myself with people that come to me with questions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's fantastic. So returning to the war as it ends, um, you, you brought the story of Charles Wooten uh, into mm. the book, um, who was murdered in 1919 by um, anti-black rioters. Um, mm. Could you tell us a little bit more about this story? Where did the riots come from? Um, what was the situation with that? And what was the aftermath and legacy of this event? Well, I can only give a kind of simplified version. It's a very complex subject. But mm. the simplified version that, that I write about in, in the Black Poppies book is that a lot, not all of them, but a lot of the white working class men that had been on the battlefields of the First World War had seen their brothers their friends, their comrades blowing up. Um, some of them may have been injured themselves. They returned to a land that was not fit for heroes. This is the way I understand it. So they came back and very quickly became very disillusioned. Right. And what they did was inexcusable, totally wrong. They scapegoated the black communities. Gosh. So in the seaports particularly, of the East End of London, Cardiff or Butte Town in Cardiff, Liverpool, which had had the longest uh, black community in, in, in their city. They attacked them. They attacked those communities, attacked their homes, ransacked their homes, um, attacked men, sometimes women got caught up in it and children. It was awful. 
their businesses were attacked it it was widespread and it kind of escalated and it it and it really at its worst was in the liverpool docks charles wooden had served in the merchant navy a young black man from, from the west indies had served in the merchant navy and was living in a seaman's boarding house in in the liverpool docks and was just chased by this white mob these rioters and chased into the liverpool dock where he drowned Gosh. the police tried to stop them they tried to retrieve them um re retrieve him uh, uh, and save him but they couldn't get to him because the mob was so big and i did access the police report right um which was very clear about what happened mm. it was very similar to an american lynching wow in the deep south they didn't lynch him as such from a tree didn't hang him from a tree they chased him into the docks it was the same sort of thing and it it, it was awful but what was distressing was the coroner's report when i accessed the coroner's report which you can from the liverpool archives and it said that how he got into the water we do not know words to that effect and it was a cover-up wow. it was wow. a complete cover-up that the black community in liverpool never forgot or forgave and it right up until the 1970s in the 70s they named a community center after him and then david olashoga told his story in his black and britain bbc television series mm. and erected a, a plaque to charles wharton's name on the liverpool docks where he was killed and so the riots continued during the summer of 1919 and eventually um but the black community stood firm. The black community stood firm and said, we're British, we're British mm -hmm. subjects. We've served in your army and your Navy. Um, we have a right to be here. Yeah. But what it was, the white men returning from the war resented them taking their jobs, marrying their women. And it, it was this, this sort of hatred for the black community born out of disillusionment. Wow. doesn't excuse them, but you have to kind of see it from their point of view as well. Um, and as a consequence of what they called the race riots of 1919, African and Caribbean and Black British servicemen were not allowed to march in the peace march of nine, July 1919 in Whitehall. They were wow. bought, barred. The... the, the Indian, Asian soldiers were allowed, but anyone of African descent Gosh. Um, were, were barred. And again, it caused resentment, but the black community stood firm in 1919 and said, we are here, we're not going anywhere. And it, and I say in the book, you know, we people are very quick to look to 1948 Empire Windrush as the start of the modern black community, but it goes back further than that. I would argue 1919. And what saddened me was that in 2019, mm. we didn't acknowledge this yeah. centenary. Nobody acknowledged it in the media, which in a way doesn't surprise me, but it was such a shame, such a wasted opportunity to acknowledge not just the anti-black riots, but the fact that the black community stood firm. There is a positive spin you could put on it um, and fought back. And didn't go away and charles wooden wasn't even commemorated in 2019 100 years after his death unless local communities did it in maybe liverpool maybe they did but it never made national news but that just shows you how institutionally racist this country can be at times mm. Mm. well and kind of building on this the the black community standing firm and and keeping their dignity and their pride in all of this this was one of the themes that really came out in in the book was mm. um, this this theme of pride, especially in the story of your your auntie Esther, um, who was a mixed race woman who was adopted into your family. Um, pride in their heritage, mm. uh, pride in their culture, their identity, pride in their service, and then also pride in being British. 
Um, that was a theme that really came through. Was oh, this absolutely. one of the things you really wanted yeah. to bring out? Yeah. Yeah, because every black elder, including my aunt, who I've talked to over the years, had that sense of pride in who they were, whether they were from Jamaica or Barbados or Trinidad or Nigeria or Sierra Leone or Fulham in London, like my aunt, or Liverpool or wherever. It, there was always a sense of pride in who they were, where they'd come from. Um, and that's what helped them through some of the more difficult times. My aunt, by and large, between the wars, didn't have too much trouble. Mm. She only experienced virulent racism on rare occasions, in, including in 1932 when she was, she'd been employed for three years as a seamstress in, in the back room of a big department store in West Kensington. Barkers of Kensington is very famous as famous then as, as Harrods still is now, but I don't wow. think Barker's exists anymore. And then this new manager came in and, and called her into his office. And she said, I thought I was going to get a rise. And he, he sacked her. He said, I don't want colored people working for me. Wow. Get your coat and go home. But her wow. father, who's a very proud and uh, tough Guyanese settler, um, went to the office and, she said he raised the roof, but there was nothing he could do because there were no laws then to protect black people from being sacked mm. based on their colour. But having said that, the flip side of it is that she then was employed by a, a white middle class woman called Mary Taylor in Chelsea, mm. employed in her home as a seamstress. Mary Taylor was a dressmaker and they, she loved it. She was there for about four or five years. It's a wonderful story. Markham Square in, in Chelsea, off oh. King's Road. And she had a great time there. Yeah. And until the war broke out and she had to do war work. But it it, it it's... Uh... So there's always good and bad stories. And that's how Aunt Esther portrayed herself to me. But then you talk to black elders and it's pretty much the same. Not all white people were bad. Some were, some weren't. But it, it, you deal with it as, as, as and when you have to. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. And and recent years have kind of shown this issue and the issue that you've brought out in your book and um, it's shown it to be incredibly culturally relevant. Um, and it's such a widespread issue. Um, with your expertise, having researched all of this, um, how have you viewed the last few years in, in this country? When... George Floyd was murdered and the Black Lives Matter movement took off in a big way and Edward Colston's statue was torn down. There was a kind of feeling, particularly amongst young people, that things were going to change. Mm. And that year, 2020, in spite of lockdown, and I learned how to do my Black History Talks for Black History Month online, yeah. A lot of the questions that came up were, do you think things are going to change? Wow. And my answer was, and it still is, I'm afraid, two, three years on, that the area that I work in, which is historian, I have to rely on publishers to mm. publish my books. Publishers in this country, I would say, are 99% white middle-class people. Right. Very few, hardly any. You can count on one hand how many black publishers there are in this country. I've worked for one of them, Valerie Brandes at Jacaranda Books, have published two of my books. Um, they're fantastic. They do fantastic work. But they're also publishing lots and lots of new black fiction books, uh, fiction books and non-fiction books by black authors, which is fantastic. But she's in a minority as a black publisher. Black mm -hmm. literary agents, I can count on one hand how many black literary agents there are. So it's a very white, middle-class dominated profession. I still, after 31 years of writing black British history books, cannot get a look in 
at some of the big publishing houses. Wow. So Harper Collins, for example, maybe I shouldn't mention names, but I am, um, will not speak to me unless I get a literary agent. But I can't get a literary agent. No literary agent would would take me on their books. I've tried. Wow. Oh, your books are too niche. Yeah. Even a, a kind of sort of pseudo left wing literary agent that somebody pointed me in the direction of um, a couple of years ago was sort of initially keen to take me on or to at least think about it. And then I never responded when I sent him my link to my website, my CV, all the rest of it. And I was quite hopeful that I would last get a literary agent. Three months later, I made inquiries. Oh, he sent me this patronising email and the same old story. Your books are too niche. So I've given up on finding a literary agent, but the publishing world is very elitist. And what I would, what I said to young people then, because mostly young people that were asking me this question, are things going to change in the publishing world, was those white middle-class people ain't going nowhere. They're not going to give up their jobs. So we're going to have to work with them and hopefully enlighten them. This was two, three years ago. I don't really see any changes other than black celebrities. And I'm not going to mention any names bringing out books. There's one who's on television all the time and she brought out a black British history book. And on the whole, it was a very good book, but for children, that is. But there were some very important black British figures from history missing. Yeah. And it, it, if she had done her homework properly, and I suspect she employed someone to do it for her, because sure. people like that can afford to do that, <laughs> and spoken to me, I would have quite happily glanced at the manuscript and, and made comments. And so that is how I feel that I don't think things have moved on. Celeb black celebrities are getting books out there. Other, I mean, history books I'm talking about, not mm. fiction or, or other non-fiction books. But it's still very much as it was then, I think. Um, and the celebrity culture, black or white, is very, very big in this country. I mean, look at Harry Prince Harry's book. I mean, it, it's the fastest, highest-selling non-fiction book ever yeah it, it it's extraordinary so you know and he's a celebrity whatever way you look at it he's a name and you also have to take on board the fact that after 31 years and this is me having a gripe i've never been acknowledged in in the board sheets never mm. not once has any of my black british history books been reviewed i've never been interviewed it's not about me it's about the people in my books. Yeah. It's about them. And it's while they're serious. being ignored by the broadsheets, then the story is still to be discovered. Mm. And where I want to go in the future is to do more black British history books for children because that is a market that publishers are still not latching onto. Teachers are desperate for resources like this there aren't enough books and resources that reflect black britons from our history and they're not being commissioned so we'll see what happens in the future but it's still tough <clears throat> and i say this with the experience of 31 years yeah um, it, it's still very tough to change the mindsets mm. i don't yeah. mean to sound pessimistic i'm not because you know, I managed to get, get it done and it inspires people to, to do similar kind mm. of work. That's very important. And I gave a talk about this book for Black History Month at a youth centre. Wow. Um, in Lambeth, close to where I live. For the police, the Lambeth police organised it. Police officers organised it. A Black History Month day. Mm. Uh, there was sport, there was food, there was all the sorts of things to attract young people. But they got me in to do this half hour talk one week later on my birthday i'm walking along the street and two little black kids looked at me and went dad dad it's the black poppies man 
and they were pointing at me and of course the dad didn't know me from adam and he's gone up to me and said what are you talking about i said oh i and i happened to have the flyer for the book on yeah. me not the book otherwise i would have given the book and i recognized these two little kids because they were at this youth center and i just showed, i gave him the flyer i said oh that i gave a talk about this book for them last week and it's lovely it was yeah. so it's better than a review in the guardian mm. i'd rather have that on the street where i live than anything else because it shows that it made an impact on these little kids yeah even if they never get to see the book but i'm hoping the father will buy it for them but even if they don't get to see the book it registered something and that's so important yeah. to me absolutely absolutely and that's that's the key is is shifting these mindsets and absolutely. especially if we can if we can do that in children and educate them well and give them good information good resources then we can start to to actually step towards a better future. It's got to happen. And it's not mm. just young black children and teenagers that need this. It's all. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a tweet from a school teacher on an island off, the, off Scotland. Wow. Um, and she was a, no, she wasn't a teacher. She was a librarian, a school librarian. Mm. And she just wanted to let me know to reach out and say, I've got, I've got your book in my in my school library. Wow. And the children are loving it. And I thought, I've never heard of this place. So I looked it up on on Google Maps. And it was like this little island. Yeah. <laughs> up in Scotland. And I thought, wow, you see what I mean? It's that kind of reaction that I get that spurs me on and instills yeah. a lot of pride in me and, and knowing that I have been on the right path. Um, I got on a bus a number 42 bus out Liverpool Street Station in London, Liverpool Street Station in London, a couple of years ago. And the bu young black bus driver looked at me and went, Black Poppies! And I went, oh. how do you know I, I wrote Black Poppies? He said, "That's that book's amazing. He said, I've learned so much. He said, he said, I wish I'd had a book like that when I was at school. And I said, yeah, but how do you know I wrote it? He said, I Googled you. No way. <laughs> <laughs> and the people in the queue were going, can we get on the bus, please? You know, yeah. bring it, bring us down to Earth. <laughs> can we get on the bus? I was like, I've got to go. <laughs> Waved at him and went and sat down. I'm home. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's it's, incredible. It's little moments like that in my life that, you know, if I'd been an academic stuck in a university, I probably wouldn't have been out there in the community appreciate, being appreciated in that way. Mm. <laughs> absolutely i and love they, academics. making that sort of they do it. wonderful work but yes. it just wasn't for me i'm just glad yeah. i've stuck to the way i wanted to do it mm. absolutely absolutely well i think it's it's inspiring and it's a, an inspiration to all people that want to um follow so. potentially yeah. niche areas of research like you've yeah. been told repeatedly that your books are are, are niche. I mean, but... is it a french word I, I looked it up in the dictionary i couldn't find it yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds um, French. <laughs> it, it does. It does. Well, like you mentioned, you've you've been doing this for around thirty odd years. Um, what is one Books, thing yeah. that you? Yeah. What What is one thing that you would have uh, learnt now that you would tell your younger self? That I was right, absolutely yeah. <laughs> right. As tough as it was in the beginning, and as intimidated as I was at going to places like the War Museum archive and. The British Library was frightened the life out of me. When you're a working class kid from South London and the teacher says, oh, if you want to find out this bit of information, you have to go to the British Library. But the British Library in those days, in the 70s, wasn't the one that we have now. It was this huge like um, Roman arena, you know, where they used to have the, the gladiators. It mm. was like that. It was like a circular, huge thing. And you walked in and there was millions of books. And I was terrified. Mm. But I was, but I'd so determined to look at back issues of the League of Coloured People's newsletter, which was published in the 1930s. And it was the newsletter of one of the first black organisations, black led organisations in Britain. And I, I, I was so determined that I just sort of went up to the desk and, you know, to overcome that sense of i won't say inferiority i don't think it was inferiority but certainly intimidation mm. and and you know growing up in a country where education is paramount go to university study you know it, it's like and i believed in all of that 
rubbish. You don't have to go to university to learn. The university of life is just as enriching. Mm. And I suppose there is a part of me that regrets not going to university when I was younger. But I've certainly more than made up for it. And I, so I would say to my younger self, just, just do what you're doing, because mm. by the time you get to the age I am now, you will be quite thrilled and excited about what has happened and that you've made it happen because mm. you, you wouldn't take no for an answer. Absolutely. No, but I've also amazing. done it, I hope, with a sense of humour. You've got to keep a sense of humour about these things because it's such a serious, weighty subject. And, uh, and again, I don't want to keep disrespecting academics, but they're so serious. <laughs> I've been, no, I've been to lectures. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like... <laughs> and I never use a lectern. I won't have them. And I never mm. call my talks lectures. When people say, oh, Stephen's giving a lecture, no, 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 no. I'm giving an illustrated talk. Mm. no i love that i love that that's brilliant well <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for coming on on the podcast no, it's you're been a real welcome. pleasure to have you're you thank you for I've your time it. thank you thank you very much thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast. If you want to find out more about Stephen and his work, you can check out his website. Uh, all the links will be in the description. You can follow him on social media and you can buy his books. Buy both of them. They have different stories in them. Go for both. There, All the links will be in the description as well, so never fear. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast and we'll see you in the next one.